Okay, people, my next guest on Just For Sport is NBA Entertainment's Andrew Thompson, also known as Andy. Now, you remember when you heard about a crew being embedded with the Chicago Bulls for that final season of Michael Jordan? Well, Andy's the one who came up with that idea. He was spearheading, producing the crew that was there following the team the whole season. So we got a lot of great stories for you about that season. But also I talked to him about what was it like watching The Last Dance, seeing his baby, so to speak, being given to ESPN and Netflix as they produce a 10-part series. We asked him about what the things that he thought was left on the cutting room floor, what he would have liked to see being done with the documentary. But we also talk about Andrew being the younger brother of number one draft pick for the Los Angeles Lakers, Michael Thompson. He's also the uncle for Clay Thompson from the Golden State Warriors. There's a lot to get into with Andrew Thompson. It's all up next on Just for Sport in three, two, one. All right, Andy, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I remember for the first time meeting you from afar uh, was 2008, NBA Europe, Wizards, Hornets. And, yeah, the players are stars, but I felt like I was looking at a star when I saw you work. And it was just like, wait, whoa, that's, I, I knew it was you, but I, but I didn't know you well. And, you know, I felt like in many ways I was trying to model my career after you. And I don't know if this is true, if you felt this way, but I remember you asking me, hey, are you here by yourself? And I was like, yeah, I'm shooting, producing, directing, editing the whole thing. And I feel like you smiled. And that was like the validation, like, okay, I made it. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I remember that because <laughs> at that time we had just started to, to turn the corner in terms of working with traditional type crews. Mm -hmm. And we, we started to do more one man bands, which were, which now everybody is a one man band now, right? Yeah. But, but you're talking about 12 years ago, people still shot in the traditional sense of a production crew with a sound man, cameraman, producer, and a PA. Yeah. But at that time, I was one of the main guys and the only guys shooting one man band. And so when I saw you and you were doing the same thing, I was like, okay, this guy, he knows, he sees the future. He's got to be good to do all of this at the same time. And that's when I knew, all right, this guy, he's going to be all right. Thank you. Oh, man, that means so much to me because, you know, back when I worked for the Wizards, it was like that's all I would do is go back to a reference of you. And, and like that was a beginning for me watching you. And even at that time, I wish I'd have more time to talk to you about your career at NBA Entertainment. So uh, I will start there in terms of not looking at your career as a whole, but what are you doing now? Because the season just stopped abruptly. And I'm sure you had many a storyline that you were working on and it just ended and our worlds just changed. How has it been for you dealing with this pandemic and uh, not having games to follow and storylines? First of all, I'm really blessed and thankful that I'm, I'm, I'm fine. My family's fine. Nobody's had the virus, so we're all healthy. So that's the main thing is maintaining our health as a family. And then the health of the NBA is still pretty good. I mean, we're in a, we're in a, a stop mode to a certain degree in terms of the big productions that we were working on. But we're like everybody else, we just shifted. Now we're doing interviews Zoom on, on Zoom and doing a lot of programming on Zoom. In about 40 minutes, I, I, hopefully I'll be, uh, be done with you, but I have a show that I'm producing called NBA 
together virtual roundtable with Karan Butler. Mm-hmm. And I'm, on, I'm the producer remotely, and he's in LA, and we have two other guests that are all over the United States. So I'm producing via Zoom now. But this is temporary. This is going to go away, hopefully, whenever the NBA resets and we come back. And then I'm on a, a project that I really can't talk about right now. And uh, but we'll, we'll see where that goes in the next couple of years. But hopefully, we'll get back to that sooner rather than later. Yeah. And uh, let, let's stick with Karan. Uh, because he was on my podcast and uh, he talked glowingly of the last dance, gave you a shout out because realistically, whether people know it or not, the last dance wouldn't be the last dance if it wasn't for you and your vision and realizing, wait a minute, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, and I read in articles uh, that, you know, Adam Silver is not an NBA commissioner was a head of NBA entertainment at that time. And you went to him and said, Hey, we need to document Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls last run. And that obviously was 97, 98. And so Karan was like, hey, make sure you say what's up to Andy. And he said, have him tell you how Kobe hounded you to see a cut of it. And obviously he's no longer with us. But, you know, I I guess over time, Kobe won. and, And you shared some of the footage with him. So he kind of got his own mini movie. How many players would ask you about what you shot and what was in the footage? First of all, let me clarify. He didn't get a mini movie. Okay. okay. Because <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble to think that I gave Kobe the movie before it was even right, a movie. Right. But for, for years, he knew I shot this for this of Jordan. And you know, everybody knows Kobe is, is Michael's muse or Michael is Kobe's muse. And he just kept hounding me and bugging me for, for years about he just wanted to see practice footage, how Michael practiced and how he led his team. And I told him for years I couldn't release it, I couldn't do anything until about three years in, he finally got, got to me and he wore me down. And I made a, a short B-roll of some practice footage just to show how Michael competes and how he gets on guys in practice. And then I finally gave it to him and, and I said, hey, you owe me. <laughs> you owe me. And, and he did pay me back for years after that because he really enjoyed the footage. Yeah. Uh, Karan's a great guy. Kobe, you know, he was teammates for Kobe, played against Jordan his rookie season. Uh, let's start with um, what was it like going back in your mind to 97, 98, or whenever this meeting was? Did it happen late, early 97, where you raise your hand and say, hey, let's do this? And did Adam Silver turn to you and say, okay, you're doing it? How did that flow from there when you came up with this idea? After the 97 championship, I, I had this item in my back pocket for about five years. I, I was with the Dream Team back in 1992. And for the first time in NBA Entertainment's history, we were embedded with the team. Mm-hmm. Before then, we would go out and do a, an hour with a player, spend, you know, spend an hour in his house, do some, an interview and a little bit of B-roll, and that would be the extent of hanging out with a player. You didn't get to hang out with teams. You didn't go on charters with teams. They just never gave us that type of access. But when I was with the Dream Team, I was the producer in charge of documenting that whole process. So being with them every day and practice on planes and hotels all over the place in Monte Carlo, I got to see so much of who they were and what they were experiencing and the fans and off the court life. And I, and I made a mental note to myself and I said, going forward, when we get back to the NBA, when I get back to the NBA, if there's an opportunity to bring this type of production and this type of shooting and and storytelling to the NBA, I want to use it. I want to do this. And I just kept waiting for the right 
place and the right time, the right team. In 97, I was thinking about, about doing it. And I just never really made an effort to pitch it to my executive producer at that time, who was Don Sperling. Mm-hmm. Don left the NBA at the end of the 97 season, and Adam Silver was appointed uh, president of NBA Entertainment. And Adam came in. We didn't know each other. He didn't know any of the senior producers at the time, and we met over the course of the summer. The 97 finals had just ended, and there was this talk about the Bulls breaking up, and, and I thought I had missed the opportunity that, to present this idea to my executive producers. And so when Adam was appointed president and he brought me into a, to the office to get to know who I was and figure out going forward what we want, should focus on, what we should produce in the coming season, I said, I've got this idea about following the Bulls and being better with the Chicago Bulls and documenting them for their last championship run if they come back. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't decided. There was this interim period when the season ended. There was talk about bringing them back. Adam's appointed. And then eventually Chicago and make the announcement, they're all coming back. But when I pitched the idea to Adam, he was like, yeah, you're right. If, if this team ever comes back for one more run, we gotta definitely embed a crew and let's, let's shoot this for historical purposes. And so once the team made the decision to come back, Adam greenlit it on the spot, made some calls and the rest is history. So when Scotty came back, Dennis wanted to take a vacation. <laughs> I come to practice, Phil calls me and says, oh, look, you know, Dennis wants to tell you something. <laughs> when Dennis wants to tell me something, I know it's not something that I don't want to hear. <laughs> so Dennis says, I need a vacation. And I look at Phil and say, Phil, what do you mean, vacation? He says, he needs a vacation. He needs some time off to let loose. I say, look, Phil, let me tell you something, man. I'm not, if anybody needs a vacation, I need a vacation. <laughs> we look at Dennis and say, Dennis, what are you going to do? As you went through the years, how many times did you go to Michael Jordan? And maybe it wasn't you, but just as a representative of the NBA Entertainment to say, is now the time? Is now the time? You know, were you kind of tinkering with the footage until ESPN and Netflix came on to just kind of shape what you thought where it should go? It got to be a running joke every time I would see Michael years and years after. But you have to understand, in 99, there was a lockout. Mm -hmm. So nobody was doing anything. The NBA pretty much shut down. And all production of what we were thinking about doing, which was a traditional documentary at that time. And then Jordan retires. And then once he retires, he kind of just walked away from everything and didn't want to have anything to do with this project. He just wanted to chill. Mm -hmm. And then so we were kind of put on hiatus. And then in 2001, he comes back. So we dust off the cameras and we go out again and we start shooting another two years in Washington. Wow. So we followed them all the way through 2003, and then he retires again. But the season really didn't go well. They didn't make the playoffs. He, it ended on a bad note. Yeah. And he walked away, and he just was like, hey, I just need a break. So now we're five years post-98, and we really don't have any impetus from Jordan and his camp, what they wanted to do. So it kind of fell on, on the wayside a little bit. And then a couple of years later, Michael goes into uh, ownership. So mm-hmm. it's pushed on the back burner again. So if you think about all these years of seeing Michael and we're asking, okay, so are we going to get a chance to do this? And then it got to be a running joke after about 10 years. Like he would see me and he'd go, don't even ask. I know what you're going to ask. I don't know when we're going to happen. So I stopped asking after about 10 years and, and uh, until yeah. 
you know, the 20th anniversary started coming around and everybody started thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, Mike Tolan was the guy with the magic dust and yeah. he convinced Michael's team and he convinced Michael to let, uh, let us go, go ahead with this project. Did you see the 10 episodes before they went live on ESPN? What was the approval process from the NBA entertainment side? Because I would tell you, I was so excited to see your name in the credits, you know, uh, to to know that you were involved and so integral in it as I learned more and more, maybe even more prouder to, to know that I know you and to see it. Uh, how far uh, advanced were you looking at cuts? Well, it was really tough, man, because, you know, we had birthed the baby and then we had kept it and swaddled it and, and just groomed it. And we were hoping for a chance to really just complete the process. Mm -hmm. But when it was, when it was sold to Mandalay Films, Mike Tolan brought in his director, and the director and Mike Tolan had a big meeting with NBA Entertainment, and there were about four or five of us in the room, and they wanted to figure out what role we were going to play in, in, in the creation of this, of this documentary. And they really wanted to depend on us, because nobody knew the footage better than us. We had lived with it and shot it for 20 years, and they wanted to make sure that we kept them in check in terms of staying true to the narrative, which was, this was about the last dance. So the departures going back to the beginning of the Bulls era, to Scotty's story, to Dennis's story, it always had to come back to 98. Mm -hmm. It didn't want, we didn't want this to be a linear documentary where you just go from Jordan's first year all the way through and there's a sprinkling of the 98 footage. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure that we preserved the integrity of the 98 film uh, footage which was the last dance. So we, we were responsible for giving them notes, calling out if they missed a shot, if they if we knew a scene that one of their editors maybe overlooked, we can point it out. So we were giving notes back and forth for you know the entire process up until episode 10. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, because of the pandemic, it was pushed up. Did you feel any of that pressure? Was the crew under pressure to go from, hey, it'll come out in June to April? Like I imagine, you know, there was some sort of, um, maybe not a rush to get it done, but you obviously thought maybe you had another month or two to kind of work on some, you know, make some tweaks and work on a few episodes. Man, you know, there's a silver lining in every cloud, right? I mean, this is a really dark cloud over this nation right now. And mm -hmm. what people are going through and the jobs and people are suffering and dying and they're sick. The fact that the silver lining in this, for us at least, I'm speaking just personally and for NBA Entertainment, is that we had an opportunity to move it up and, and, and provide some, some relief, some, an escape for a lot of people that miss sports, live sports, that miss mm -hmm. programming that's original. And we felt it was just a great op opportunity. And ESPN gets all the credit. Connor Schnell said, this should, be, this should be moved up to give people an opportunity to see this over the course of this pandemic and just give them a couple of hours every Sunday just to break away from whatever's, you know, worrying them just to get some some relief, and I'm, I'm so glad that ESPN moved it up. Uh, after watching the 10 episodes, is there anything that you wish was done differently? Because I mean, at least from my perspective, I did like it, but sometimes it was hard to understand uh, where we were in the timeline, you know, I mean, hey, six championships, the kind of, the, the games and, and the storylines kind of uh, go together and just, 
what are your thoughts after seeing all 10 where you felt it landed in terms of what you wanted to see out of a final product? Listen, man, I have, I have critiqued Steven, Steven Spielberg. I've, I've critiqued <laughs> Martin Scorsese. I've critiqued you know, Steven Soderbergh. All of these are my favorite directors. So of course it's not a perfect film and, and because I have my own ideas of how things should have been done. But I can't really say that it was, it's confusing. It was, it was, it was really, really good. I tip my hat to Jason and to Mike Tolan for what they did. Because when we were thinking about doing this, like I said, 20 years ago, we were thinking about a, a 90 minute to two hour doc, which was traditional back then. So thank God we didn't get to do this 20 years ago because it would have been 90 minutes, two hours max. And you wouldn't have seen 90% of that stuff because yeah. it would on the editing room floor. And then OJ Made in America came out and everybody thought, hey, we can do five episodes, an hour each. So we thought, started thinking five hours. They went above that and they blew up that model and went to 10. Mm -hmm. For a while we thought they were kind of nuts. And then they started breaking down each episode and how they would go back and tell backstories on, on players and coaches. And then it made sense. And guess what? They were right. Mm -hmm. 10 episodes was the perfect amount. Matter of fact, a lot of my friends, and you will say, yeah, they're your friends. They're saying, we wish we had more. And I said, no, I think 10 is a sweet spot. I think five weeks is a sweet spot. I said, you always want to have them wanting more than saying, ah, it got a little long. It got a little boring. Yeah, so those guys, I think, I think they hit it out of the park. Yeah. They really did. I can't, I can't nitpick on that. And I guess if there were some things that were left on the cutting room floor, you can always do an uncut version. You know, on, a, on a, another anniversary, 25, 50, hey, here's more footage, here's another documentary. For sure, for sure. Uh, there's, there's a lot of scenes in there that uh, could have played out longer, that I yeah. know there's meat on the bone on a lot of those scenes that I wish it could have gone 30 seconds or a minute longer, like the scene of Jordan in the locker room with the baseball bat. Yeah. There's another three and a half minutes of really cool stuff in there, but wow. for, the, for the length of the the segment that episode you had to you had to cut some of it out so all of it couldn't stay in there yeah and that's interesting too because i remember uh people talking about how that was cool obviously because he went on to play baseball that he's holding that bat there and then smoking a cigar um that at you know, 9 30 in the morning yeah <laughs> george was just a different cat um okay i do have one question that maybe no one else has brought up, but I, I brought up before. Okay, after they beat the Pistons, uh, and I'm pivoting here a little bit, Jordan's wearing a three-peat shirt. And so that's the first place I was confused. You remember he's wearing a three-peat t-shirt. Um, and I, I, do you recall what that's from at all? Nothing? I do not know what you're talking about. Um, after no, they, I, they eliminated uh, the Detroit Pistons, which- I, yeah, I remember that. Right. And he has on a shirt that says three-peat. And I was like, was it like a three-peat to stop the Pistons from getting a three-peat? Because I was like, well, it couldn't be the three-peat or else Jason or someone would have accidentally put footage in the wrong place. Sometimes, uh, the only explanation I can, I can probably give you is that we're dealing with a massive amount of footage, right? Like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and B-rolls mm -hmm. and some of the editors may have used inadvertently use a shot because it worked and not check that it was that it was three years later yeah 
that happens that happens in every film right i know game of thrones that you see somebody's in a in a, in a, it's the coffee and, there's, coffee and there's a and there's a there's a bottle right of evian <laughs> in the battle scene or something like that so yeah stuff like that happens you know it's not intentional but i can tell you it's it's a lot of footage to go through so yeah the fact that it's been out 100 percent, then that's fine uh did you did you ever consider going with uh dennis rodman for the wwe event because that was a year you were filming right because i was going to ask about vegas but i was like you probably you were in chicago when he nobody took the knew. Vegas. nobody knew we went to practice and we, and we were like everybody else like it, we're at practice and everybody's like wait, 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 where's dennis, where's dennis? <laughs> and then we're in practice and you hear phil like well we heard dennis was oh dennis was at the WWE." so we were there like with everybody else not knowing what dennis was going to do and he took everybody by surprise yeah uh, did because you share with us if there was a moment that wasn't put in the documentary that you wish was, or just something that you remember that you just always go back to from that season? Uh, boy, this I mean, there's a lot of great, great bonding, I think, with between the, the guys. They would eat breakfast, team breakfasts in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and they'd all get together and they'd, they'd eat breakfast and they'd kind of joke around and everything. and. And then at times we would go out to dinner with these guys. But if they were in New York or in LA or Detroit, we would ask if we can tag along. And they would, not everybody, but a lot of, a lot of the team members would all bond together and eat, and eat dinner. And it was really strange that it wasn't in the film because it, it, it would have been nice to see the, that, yeah, he, Jordan was tough, right? He can get really salty. But at the same time, you know, the team would bond and everything was great. And there was a scene too that we caught up with Scotty Burrell in the moment because we knew he was getting whipped every day by Michael. Yeah. And one of the things we did at the end of the regular season, we caught up with Scotty and we said, Hey man, I know you've been taking the brunt of a lot of Jordan's wrath. I said, um, how do you feel about that? And he was in his hotel room and he was sitting on his bed, relaxed. And he was like, man, I am so thankful of what he did because he's made me battle ready. I'm ready for the playoffs. I would not have been the player this season without Michael. That's I know funny. he said that, in his interview, but it would have been great to hear that in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think that um, I did, especially for the backlash that I feel like Jordan is getting now, you know, Pippen says he's unhappy with how he was portrayed, Horace Grant talking about it. And it's like, yeah, but you may not have seen when they were together and having a good time. All you saw really was practice footage of Jordan like, ah, but you didn't see when they were really smiling and having a good time on a regular basis. I guess the, the most famous one was him listening uh, to Kitty Lattimore on the bus, which I'm like, who listens to Kitty Lattimore as hype music for a game? Maybe only know, Michael right? Jordan. <laughs> but yeah, I would have liked to have seen that as well. Uh, did Jordan have any special text for you or call after it aired or, or throughout just to kind of share his thoughts on it with you? No, we had a Zoom call right before episode one with mm-hmm. everybody who was involved with the project, and he thanked me and um, thanked me for the also for the cigars that I gave him along the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, again, going back to you know uh, you giving cigars. I mean, like that's just a great story, and 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 I would like to get more into you now in terms of your career. 
you went to University of Minnesota following your famous basketball playing brother with the Lakers. You got the two jerseys behind you. As you said before we started, your, your two favorite Michaels, Michael Thompson is your brother. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah. What? When did you know, outside of an injury, that, that this was your career? That you're like, you know what? I want to tell stories. And it was your way to stay in the game of basketball after your playing career was done. Listen, man, there are certain things in life that um, that's destiny, that's fate. And, and sometimes you don't even have an explanation as to why, um, but it's just, the, this was my calling. Uh, I guess God had a plan for me because when I was a kid, I would watch every TV show. Mm. I would memorize every jingle from the commercials, from the theme songs. I would memorize movie lines. I'd watch movies incessantly. I was a huge music fan. Um, I was a photography buff. I love art. So all of these things in my life that I did before I started working for the NBA, I have an encyclopedic mind for remembering lighting and movie scenes and songs and, and lying. Just all these things that just didn't make any sense to me. Like, why am I, why is this stuff in my head? And it just, I didn't know until I was introduced to the world of production. And then I found out what storytelling was about and being in the game and understanding the ebb and flow of, of conversations and interviews and capturing things and framing everything differently. I always tell people, I, 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 when I was in college, my canvas was a, was a piece of white canvas that I painted on, right? Mm -hmm. But now my canvas is this big piece of 16 by nine glass. Mm -hmm. And that's my canvas now. So I look at the TV screen as my new canvas and, and, and I compose shots in my head and I hear, I hear music and basketball, which is my first love. And now I've learned to channel that into my second love, which is production. And it all kind of just came together very magically. And, and I just thank God that I was put in this earth and I figured out what I was born to do. I remember when David Stern we had a meeting one time and we were trying to figure out who the next executive producer was. And he wanted to get my guidance. And I, I said, can I give you a pre-ramble? And he said, uh, and he said uh, preamble, sorry. And he said, yeah. So I said, David, I always thought I was a failure in my life. He said, why? He said, because my brother is a number one pick, <laughs> right? I said, I'd never hardly played in, in high school. I barely played in college. I have a two point game per, per game scoring average in college. I, I got cut three times by the NBA. My career overseas isn't really much to talk about. I said, you can see why you think, I think my career is, is a failure until I started working for the NBA, until I discovered the world of production. I said, the two most important days of a man's life is the day he is born and the day he found that finds out what he is born to do. Mm. I said, David, this is what I was born to do. For years, I thought I was supposed to be a basketball player like my brother, but this is my destiny. And so all that being said, all of those things that shaped me and helped me and made me to be the kid who I was and I grew up and all these things now that are still in the back of my head and, and it, it helps me to, to do the job and, and be the producer that I am now. Mm -hmm. That's a long answer, but that's, that's how I found, found this, this calling and this gig. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand it. That's in many ways how I feel. Um, Okay, did you have a camera in your hand for 97, 98, or were you producing then? Oh, I had a camera. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, nobody in the world of 
of producing, and I can pretty much say this with certainty, most producers in television back in the early 90s and the 80s, they produced with a traditional crew, cameraman, sound man, PA. That was the way it was done. Nobody shot their own video as a producer. Yeah. Matter of fact, most producers back then didn't even edit. Yeah. If you worked for a major news station, you when you got your footage, you went into an edit room and you sat down with an editor and you and you had a paper edit mm-hmm. and you told your editor, all right, these are the shots I want, and they and they would edit for you. Yeah. In the NBA, in NBA Entertainment, producers learned to edit quickly. So we were we were editing our own stuff way before everybody else. Mm-hmm. One of the things that made me a shooter was back in 92 at the Dream Team, the first day of practice, everybody's, you know, we're in practice and we're shooting Jordan, Bird, Magic, Ewing, so, uh, with one camera crew. Yeah. <laughs> That's and so Larry's holding court over there, right? And like, everybody's yucking it up. So my crew is following Larry. And then over here, Jordan's holding court and he's got even a bigger circle around, uh, around him. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking we can't cover this with one crew. So yeah. I go to my executive producer and I say, we need two crews to cover this. This is the dream team. He says, we don't have the, the budget, mm-hmm. sorry. So I started thinking, all right, then you gotta buy me a camera. You have to buy me a little consumer brand camera, digital camera, a, a video camera, so I can shoot like the other guys. Yeah. So yeah. It was yeah. during the 92 dream team thing that I started shooting and I got a Super 8 camera. I started, started shooting Super 8 film. Yeah. To give it the documentary look but I also shot video. And so I would be the second crew and it worked so well that I was able to capture so much extra footage because mm-hmm. I had my own camera and I never stopped shooting ever since 92. And I was the first producer in NBA entertainment or anywhere in New York. Wow. Shot. People would always see me out in, as a producer and go, you shoot your own video too? I was like, yeah, it's, I just supplement whatever my crew is getting. And I, and I pick up a lot of things that most producers never get. Yeah. Once once Jordan walks through, they follow Jordan, right? But the kid who just went, oh my God, and he's hugging his dad, they missed that. But mm-hmm. but I'm able to get it because I know I can focus on that kid and my crew is following Jordan. Yeah. So I began to pick up all these great shots and it made my storytelling better. And eventually more NBA entertainment producers saw how much better my stuff was and they wanted their own cameras. And that led to the evolution of NBA entertainment first allowing all the producers who wanted to shoot their own camera. And eventually all the producers are one man bands now. We hardly <laughs> ever use, unfortunately, to the well, yeah. of, of crews, we, we hardly ever use crews now. We're mm-hmm. all shooting our own stuff. Mm-hmm. But it started in 1992. Did your brother, you know, how proud of of you is he? I mean, as I, I imagine you've talked to him about this, you know, hey, am I a failure? But yet here you are sitting on top of the world at NBA Entertainment, especially with this documentary of, no, I did make it. And I've had a very long career. Yeah, he's very proud. He's very proud of me. He heard about this project 22 years ago when I shot it. And mm-hmm. he had never seen it. I had never even let him see one second of it. Neither did my wife. No one's seen it. And for years, he's heard about it. But even before then, he's seen a lot of the work that I've done. And I remember when I won the Emmy for being one of the producers on The Doctor. And that was the crowning of, of, of my career so far at the NBA. And he really felt proud that, that his little brother you know, brought home an Emmy and, 
ever since then, he, he really understands that, okay, you must be really good if you, if you can win a sports Emmy. Yeah. And he's really proud that, that everybody's finally getting a chance to see the work that I put in over the last 20 years. How about your nephew, Clay Thompson? Does he, the, how, did he watch the doc? What was his thoughts on it? Clay, I, I'm still waiting for him to get back to me. <laughs> okay. He, he doesn't get back. I, I just read an article the other day about how Mike Brown, the assistant coach, is reaching out to all the, the Warriors just to kind of check in, see how they're doing. Mm -hmm. He's heard back from every player except Clay. Oh, okay. Typical. Uh, Clay yeah. just does, he doesn't, he doesn't answer texts. He doesn't call back. So my brother's been telling me he loves it. And then just out of the blue the other night, he asked me, how come Jordan's kids weren't in the documentary more? Oh, okay. <laughs> so that came out of nowhere. He was on radio silence for like three months. And so I got a chance to text him back and say he just likes to keep that part of his life alive. Yeah. But that's, that's Clay for you. Yeah. Do you think having a relationship to your brother, but also Clay Thompson, helps you understand not just the past with Michael, but understanding the players now because Clay could kind of give you an understanding of, you know, like an article I read of yours in, uh, I think, New York Times or USA Today about because you were an athlete, your brother was an athlete, your nephew's an athlete, you know when to push, when to pull, when to step back, when to go in, things like that in dealing with professional athletes. It definitely helps. Being around my brother in the first iteration of a super team was back in the 80s when, the, when it was showtime. And being around my brother at Magic and Kareem, and it was similar. It wasn't at the same level, but watching how those guys negotiated fame and access and fans, that, that was my first introduction to like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, segueing into the NBA and, and, and having that, that knowledge from hanging around my brother, but also knowing people that, that my, knew my brother, guys who I played against in, in camps that were still in the NBA that, that became coaches or friends. And, and then having Ahmad vouch for me with Michael Jordan certainly helped when he introduced mm -hmm. me to Michael on my first shoot. Um, every segment of my career has been boosted by somebody giving me an opportunity and, and kind of vouching for me. And now with Clay being on this new super team in the NBA, at least up until last year, not this year. Yeah, not. <laughs> uh, and it's been a it's been a good ride because all of my life I've been Michael's little brother, and now I'm Clay's uncle. So I, yeah. I don't know, maybe this will help people identify me as Andy Thompson. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that should be your introduction, right? Your, who yeah. your brother is and who you're, you're, you're the uncle of, I think. is it. Does, he, yeah. does Clay ever ask you for advice on how to deal with the media at all? And do you always get the Golden State Warriors assignment just because it would be easier? Oh, for sure. I, I, I've been do documenting the Warriors for the last, uh, how long has he been in the career? I think, uh, NBA, nine Six, years. Nine? So once oh, Clay nine. became a Warrior. Wow. Yeah, I was I was assigned to the Warriors right from the start because that's my nephew, right? And I, I get a chance to also pick and choose a lot of my assignments. So I was like, okay, if there are there if there's any Warrior shoots, I'm gonna do it. And then once Steve Kerr became the head coach, obviously Steve and I go back to the '98 season where we became friends. He, mm -hmm. he got to know me as a producer and as a person. And then even beyond that, when he went to the Spurs, I kept you know, a good um, relationship with him. So once Steve became the head coach, then it was a natural connection between Steve and I. 
-hmm. And so I've been the the warrior, so-called producer for a long time because of just of my relationships with the organization and, and the players. Yeah. Um, when you think about where we are now and dealing with this pandemic and you talked about how, you know, the, the documentary really um, gave people something to think about in a tough time. Uh, we may never go back to how it was in terms of covering a team, in terms of uh, sports in general, how the fans will interact with players, how you'll be able to tell stories. What has been the biggest challenge for you today in a way to tell a story and you didn't have a year to think about, okay, we're going to do it this way when Jordan's about to retire. This is what we're going to do for the ball. This was like so immediate where it's like, hey, we're, everything's changed. What has been something that you've had to really reinvent yourself with this pandemic? Well, everybody, I think I'm in the same boat as everybody else because the top players at least, and for the most part, a lot of the players have their own production companies. Mm -hmm. And so to do something that's exclusive, to get them a simple request like, hey, I want to drive with you to the game uh, or, or from the game to your house, uh, have you make breakfast for your kids and then do an interview. They don't want to do that anymore. Whereas 20 years ago or 15 years ago, they might consider that if they did that now, they're going to have their own production crews shoot it and it's going to end up on their own social platform. Mm -hmm. So the really top players, they have their own guys that are shooting all of their videos and shooting all of their documentaries and shooting all their stories, which is really good for them. But for us, it, it doesn't give us the same type of access. And so I remember there was a, a particular player that I'm following and I'm on the bus ride with this player and I just hesitated and I let the player get off before me and I got trapped with the other guys jumping in front of me and the player gets off as he jumps off, this fan is yelling, hey, da -da -da, can you sign my shoes? I've been waiting for years. The player stops, signs his shoes. I'm watching this with my camera and I can't get off the bus soon enough. And he signs the shoes, oh, I love you, I love you, and gives the guy a high five and he walks in and I'm like, gosh, I missed that. That would have been a great element. No more than like 15 minutes later, that fan, well, a fan probably next to him, probably shot it and put it up on their social site. And within 15 minutes, that shot was all around the world. By the next morning, it's 2 million views. Mm -hmm. So if I would have got that with my camera, it's no act that's not access anymore because it's now two million people watching this so that's the difference of when we shot even 10 years ago before social media if we captured something like that it stayed in our cameras mm -hmm. now if you're capturing something in public you could be sure there's another 10 or 12 20 cameras capturing the same thing yeah so trying to keep things exclusive when you're in around the arena or around the game or in public is almost impossible now you almost have to be behind closed doors yeah. to get that yeah. intimacy and to get that exclusivity that you want. Yeah. Of the players that are playing today, uh, who are you enjoying most covering uh, or their story? You really like their story that uh, it's a shame that they're, they're, that story can't get told the same way now that the season has started. Or maybe it's not so much this season, but just over the last four or five years. 
Well, I'm a big Laker fan because obviously my brother, that's where he won his yeah. <laughs> first championship. And after he won the second championship, he gave me one of his rings. So wow. the Lakers are near and dear to my heart because I got a championship ring from the Lakers. I, before people start hating, I don't wear it, okay? <laughs> my brother gave it to me. I didn't earn it. I have it. But it's just, it, was a, it was a gift from my brother, all right? So please don't get on me about it. <laughs> So I always enjoyed cover, covering the Lakers, and I got to be really tight with Kobe. Like I said, he owed me, and so he, he gave me a lot of access back in the day. God rest his soul. And so whenever the Lakers are are around, or I, I'm I love covering the Lakers because of the history and because of my connection with my brother, and it gives me a chance to see my brother every time I go out on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Plus, they have a guy out there by the name of LeBron James. <laughs> Really cool to cover. Yeah, uh, uh, I like to joke and say, yeah, my my cousin Anthony Davis is there too. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, when when you're thinking of the Lakers, uh, and I wanted to ask you this, uh, that just something that just came to my head yesterday, was Paul Pierce saying LeBron James is not one of the top five, and he had Magic, Kareem, Bill Russell. Uh, Shoot, why am I forgetting the other two? It wasn't Will Chamberlain, Kobe Bryant, and oh my gosh, I'm missing whoever the fifth one is. It's a shame. But how is LeBron not one of the top five players in the NBA today? Uh, pretty easy. I think the, the lifetime average that he has over Paul Pierce of the 50, other, 50 odd times they played against each other, I think he's, he's outscored him like 32 to. 18. Okay. So that's all you got to say right there. That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> 32, and eight, 32 against 18. Uh, <laughs> okay. Next question. Watching a documentary uh, at the very end, I thought episode seven, him, Jordan starting to tear up and saying, that's it, I'm done. I thought that was a perfect ending. If you never showed me another episode, that was it. Did you really feel the emotion of that ending more so than the one that was at the end of episode 10? Yeah, I was there for that interview. And I remember I had the headsets on and I'm off to the side and I'm sitting there with a couple of other people on the set and and I'm watching this interview. And once again, there's um, two minutes before that and there's another probably 10 seconds after he says I'm done. That is so powerful. I, I looked, I, when I took my headsets off, I was like, that is unbelievable. So yeah, yeah that, I have never seen Michael tear up and so emotional. And, but if you saw the, that, whole, that whole answer in its entirety, it's even more impactful, mm-hmm. believe it or not. But that's once a, again, for timing, they had to edit it down. Yeah, that's the one thing I hate about television. Maybe if they, I hope they did it. Maybe you could tell me one way or the other, but Netflix, there is no time. Please tell me they put some of this stuff back in. I always say this, in the NBA, we have so many iconic shots, like Jordan hugging the trophy, right? Yeah. He cried with that trophy for about two minutes, but you've only seen 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But there's two minutes of him just sobbing and his dad rubbing his neck and like that should be there. There should be a show on just iconic moments that just haven't been allowed to breathe. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, people actually saw Jordan on the floor crying after the, the Father's Day game. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that shot before, but we never allowed the audio of him sobbing 
to be played because it yeah. was so gut-wrenching. Yeah. But in this documentary, you heard the sobs. Mm-hmm. And that went on for, for another 20 seconds. But once mm-hmm. again, we cut it because we felt it was just getting, it was too emotional. So there are all, all these shots that are so iconic that need to be, to be given a chance to breathe. Well, maybe that's your next show. Maybe, maybe iconic, you could do iconic that. Iconic moments that breathe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, going to the end of episode 10, he talks about how, man, I should have the chance to go for that seven championship. Our team should. And the first thing that came to my mind is, and you can school me on why I'm right or wrong, or yeah, you have a point. Jordan stopped the run on his own after the third championship. And is there some level of him understanding, hey, you quit too. You kept your team from winning the fourth in a row. You stopped the run as well as Krause did. Is there any sort of uh, atonement for that from him or understanding that, yeah, you know, you're right. I did that too. That's a really, that's a really uh, difficult question to answer because I don't think, this, yes, Phil could have come back and he didn't because he, he, you know, he, wanted, he didn't want to break the agreement that he and Krause had. Jordan was married to Phil. Right. If I'm married to my wife and they say, we're going to bring you back, but your wife is not coming, then mm-hmm. what am I going to say? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with my wife. Jordan's married to Phil. Get together. So it's unfair to say, Michael, you can come back if you want, but we're not bringing back your, your spouse. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to try and parcel out like who really quit. But, I'll let the history books decide that years from now, but that's my explanation is that yeah. there's, there's, there's enough blame to go around for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I did truly enjoy it, and again, I'm very thankful uh, to, to not only be able to see it, but to know you. Uh, last question. What documentary would you want to do next of the potential storylines that are out there today from the players today, or maybe something you covered back then? It's so funny. I have not worked, thought about like a definitive documentary that I have in mind. Um, but I am working on something now that's pretty cool. But there isn't, there isn't like a documentary, this monolith title that I have. It's, okay. it's, it's fluid right now. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate you giving me some time. It's been a pleasure. I learned so much and I look forward to seeing what you do next. And thank you for being on Just for Sport. Thanks for having me and keep grinding. I will. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. Yeah, man. All right, I want to thank Andy Thompson for coming on the show with me. I really had a great time, and I hope you learned some new things about this last dance. You know, I feel like I wish we could watch it all over again, and I will probably again on Netflix, and hope you are too. Uh, Maybe we'll get that director's cut someday to see some of that footage that was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the pod. Thank you very much for listening. You can catch more on the Props Network YouTube page, but also as a podcast on Google and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your pod just for sport will be there all right uh, my next guest you have to wait and listen or see ciao for now